We said yesterday that the science of theology as a body of knowledge about divine revelation has as its first object God. So what he does in the first part of the Summa, which we are skipping, having shown the mind can cooperate with God by thinking about him naturally, is talk about that divine names are attributes of the one God, the God who is simple, infinite, perfect, good, all-powerful, life, truth, mercy, and the fact that that God, who is the one God and unknown in many respects to us, is also revealed as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has a deep, profound analysis of the mystery of the Holy Trinity and also thinks about what it means for the Trinity to inhabit in us. It's a question 43 in the Summa on the missions of the Holy Trinity. What does it mean for the Father to send the Son into the world, send the Holy Spirit into the world for, you might say, divine inhabitation in the soul of man? Then he looks at, in light of God, creation, angels, the human person as an animal that's animal and spiritual, spiritual animal, and the rest of the visible creation. Looks at, writes little trees on the six days of creation, understanding lots of it to be metaphorical and also thinks it's divine revelation. And looks at uh, divine government. How does God govern the world? How, what was the first state of the human person in a state of grace? And how does God govern the world in view of the good of man? Okay. So he doesn't really deal that much with like the fall. And of course, he's not looking at the redemption. Now, in the second part, he deals with human action and human virtues and vices. And this is so massive that it's in two parts. We call it the prima secunde and the secunda secunde. The first part of the second part and the second part of the second part. <laughs> this is like the, you know, a giant, you go to some restaurant, there's some giant menu. There's the first part, then there's the second part and the third part. But the second part is so huge, we have to expand it. It's the fold-out menu. And what we're going to look at today is the first two questions of the first part of the second part and the second, and then tomorrow the secunda secunde first two questions. Now, they have different subject matters. They're all about human acts, but the first one is more general. It's about what human action, the action theory is, and it looks at a lot of the whole opening sections on happiness, which we're going to look at, and then structure of human freedom, what a human free act is, 12 moments of the human free act. Did you know there are 12 moments of the human free act, six in the intellect and six in the will? When you study it with Aquinas, you realize it's really hard to avoid concluding he's right about that. Not all 12 are found in Descartes' study of freedom or Locke's. So that's an interesting thing to compare him. You know. And then after studying the structure of human freedom, he goes on to look at what virtues are that are natural virtues and supernatural virtues, the effects of sin and then the remedies that are accorded by law and grace. That's all in the first part of the second part. Then the second part of the second part, very simple, studies all the virtues and vices. The four, the four cardinal and the three theological, and then all the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are related to them. It's massive, the most important treatise of moral theology written in the history of the church. The third part is about the incarnation and the sacraments. How we, how the, so you've, you've studied God and all things proceeding from God in the first part, the structure of human acts oriented toward happiness under grace, aided by grace and, and law in the second part, and the virtues and vices. In the third part, Christ the way back to the Father. How the God, you might say in a, in a word, it's from God 
to man, to the God-man. But Christ is the way back to communion with the Holy Trinity for the fallen human being. So he looks at Christ in the sacraments. And we'll look at the first two questions. Okay, now I'm going to open the Summa, Prima Secundae. Kant wrote a little book called uh, Metaphysics is the Ground of Morals. And in a way, that's like a little secularized version of what's going on in the first question of man's last end. In other words, Aquinas is somewhere here between a, a sheerly metaphysical analysis of man, which by the way, he's given a lot of in the first part, the structure of what a human being is. That's all kind of presupposed. And so we don't, we, you know, we're not going back and look, does the human being have a spiritual soul? He made lots of arguments about that. In the first part, question 75, 2076. Does the human being have freedom? He made a lot of arguments about that already. But here he's looking at how the structure of what it is to be human is at the base of how we live morally. What we are, metaphysically speaking, affects deeply how we ought to live and what we live for, the kind of thing we are when we make free decisions in view of our own happiness. So this first question is of man's last end. And the second question is uh, on of those things which man's happiness consists. And the third question, which you don't have, and which I'll just probably eventually, hopefully, read later, one article from to you is called, What is Happiness? So does man have a last end? What does his last end consist of insofar as he's oriented towards happiness? And what is happiness? Now, let's just note a few, something very important. This is a book that's about human action theory and about man's destiny and his ethical life. And what is the first category well, let's say the first two categories that are governing the whole treatise, happiness and finality, teleology. Both of those are controversial. One of them is controversial in a sort of delightful way. The other one is, seems more burdensome or radical. Now, the one that's delightful is happiness. You know, if you say, what is the essence of the ethical life of man? Now, if I had a little radar gun and I was like, could like look at people's souls, I'd go out in the street with a, I'd go out with a camera and a microphone, and I'd ask a really important question, like, what is the fundamental principle that determines the ethical comportment of man? Go, right? And let's just say, for the sake of argument, all my friends out on the street there in Times Square are sufficiently linguistically and culturally. Uh, you know, well-heeled enough that they can answer that question in an, in an immediate motion of the mind. And you know what they all are going to say? Both the ones who are nihilists and the ones who are really upright, they're going to say, duty, obligation, obedience to law. And then some of them are going to say, we must have it. And others are going to say, I despise it. But then some cheerful, happy, serene, joyful person is going to come and they're going to say, happiness. Happiness is the key concept to ethics. And the Kantians and the Nietzschean nihilists are all going to look at us. No, it's not. It's duty, obligation, law. To which we will just look at them beamingly, smiling, and say, happiness, happiness. Live a life that's happy. Anyway, that is what the Catholic Church actually teaches. Now, if you say, no, 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 this is just some weird Thomas view. Actually, no, it's in, not only is it obviously in Aristotle as the commanding feature, it's in Augustine. It's what Augustine says is the key to ethics. 
You can't get bigger authorities than that. I'm sorry, they don't exist. They don't exist. The greatest authorities in the Catholic tradition teach that the core idea behind ethics in Christianity is the pursuit of happiness. So, eudaimonianism. Now, you can say, well, hold on now. I've read enough of Immanuel Kant to know that means we're starting from the perspective that's ultimately narcissistic and selfish. You just want your own good, your own self-flourishing. Well, yes, that's a very important objection to keep in mind, and it's also not something you should believe. But you do have to find an answer to that objection ultimately. Can you become happy by doing something that is good for another as your primary worry in life, especially if that other is God? And can that render you more happy than if you lived for yourself? Well, that's an interesting question. Or is it actually, maybe even better said from a Thomas point of view, the, also the best way of living for your own self, your own, in your own self, your own best life, to do things for God? Now, teleology is, of course, much more controverted. We know that since the 14th century, there have been people trying to problematize the final cause, which Aristotle call, calls the cause of all causes. One of the culprits here being, of course, a Franciscan, as we've seen thematically in this class, <laughs> William of Ockham. And he's not just any medieval Franciscan. He's a particularly acidic thinker who wants to tear down many of the, 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 you know, the previously held truths of classical education. And Ockham gives some very powerful arguments against um, teleology or final causality in nature. And then he's followed, or the echoes of him, dribble down through time, and you find people like Descartes dismissing the idea of final causality in nature and so forth and so on. There's a long history of this. This is not something to be trifled with because there's a lot of serious people who are very brilliant in the analytic philosophy world who think anyone who believes there's final causes in the structure of nature is a goofball, nostalgic weirdo from the Middle Ages trying to project a bunch of ideology that's outdated onto a world that, in light of modern science, we know should not have teleology ascribed to it. And that's a very common viewpoint. So that's not something to trivialize and just dismiss those people as like a religiously benighted human beings. There are a lot of ways that people think in a post-Newtonian, post-Darwinian universe that the medieval competence in the ascription of teleology to nature is not warranted. However, I will attempt to make the claim that this is not such a ambitious claim as some think. There's some very simple reasons to describe teleology to all things in different and analogical ways, as Aquinas does it at least. Now, I'm just going to, this is not my area of expertise. This is the day of, of four days I know least about. We're going to depend on the text. I'm going to read to you and I'm going to comment it. The other thing is it's hyper dense. Like almost every line you could comment on quite at length will try to be reasonable. Mm -hmm. Whether it belongs to man to act for an end. I answer that, I'm going right to the corpus. Of actions done by man, those alone are probably called human, which are proper to man as man. Now man differs from irrational animals in this, that he is the master of his actions. Whereof those actions alone are probably called human, of which man is master. Now man is master of his actions through his reason and will. Whence to the free will is defined as the faculty of will and reason. It's really important, right? But that's not a Nietzschean concept or something. I mean, to be really, to exercise free will is to be reasonable. That's to say intellect determines the core internal element of what a free will act is. I'll come back to all this. 
I'm just going to read first, come back. Therefore, those actions are probably called human, which are proceed from a deliberate will. And if any other actions are found in man, they can be called actions of a man, but not properly human actions. Now, it is clear that whatever actions proceeded from a power are caused by that power in accordance with the nature of its object, but the object of the will is the end and the good. Therefore, all human actions must be for an end. Okay. Well, just let's note a few things here. First of all, Aquinas makes a famous distinction of his own thought between acts of a man and human acts. If you are sleeping and a fly lands on your brow in the Roman heat, and unconsciously, semi-consciously, you brush it away, rather like the dog whose tail wags to swish away the fly. That is the act of a human being, but that is not what Aquinas calls a human act. Because a human act is an act that stems and proceeds from reflection through a deliberate choice-making out of love that is immaterial or spiritual in nature. Digesting, I ate some chocolate recently, and I suppose there's some stage of the digestive process at which it is now proceeding in my stomach. Okay, that's human. To be human is to digest chocolate. I don't say that those who don't eat chocolate aren't human, but one must ask the question. <laughs> that being said, the fact that it is human to, to digest chocolate does not mean that digest digesting chocolate is, properly speaking, a human act in what Aquinas means by that term. Now, already this is front-loaded with a major metaphysical claim, which he has argued for earlier, which is the most distinctive thing about human beings is that we, unlike the other animals, are reasonable, free animals because we have what he calls faculties of the intellect and will. Faculties are powers of the soul that operate always in view of specific objects. So I mentioned one a minute ago, the faculty of the vegetative life that is capable of digesting food, what is its specific object? It works to be able to assimilate nutrients from things that I've digested. We have reproductive faculties that are capable of objectively specifying acts. They perform acts objectively specified by the capacity to reproduce and communicate life. We have sensate faculties, external faculties like the five senses, internal senses like your imagination. Those are animal faculties. Other animals have imaginations. They don't use them in the ways we do. We spiritualize our imagination, but they have imaginations. Then we, we have these two other faculties, the intellect and will. We also have the passions. A more, I'm not naming every faculty, but the point is we have vegetative, sensate, and intellectual faculties. But the two intellectual are reason, free will, and they can govern the whole human person. I can govern my sensate life and my vegetative life by my intellect and will. I can even choose not to eat chocolate, which is sometimes a virtuous act, but most of the time a vicious act. <laughs> okay, so now, so all I'm saying is I'm just noting he's made a decision here from the beginning. He's made a decision from the beginning to look at the human being through the, you might say, the prism or the optic of intellect and will. That's not, not crazy. It's actually super traditional. But look, already we're far away from people who think we're just bundles of atoms or you know, highly evolved frontal lobes walking around on, you know, uh, on legs, frontal lobes on legs. 
you know, happenstances of the universe spit out by the random mutations. We're, we're a long way from all that. But we're at the heart of the classic, not only Christian tradition, Jewish and Christian tradition, but also even the heart of the Enlightenment tradition. I mean, this is not, we're not a world away. John Locke would probably not concede that there are faculties specified by objects. He would probably problematize that in a skeptical kind of way. Kant will not concede that there are faculties. He's already, by the time you get to him, it's already really, he's agnostic or even skeptical about faculties. But Descartes, Kant, a lot of the mainstream Enlightenment world, they're still kind of working with this picture of man as the rational free animal. Okay. Let's get on to some real controversy. Whether it is proper for the rational nature to act for an end. Now, as if that weren't already a controversial enough hint, the first line is of massively controversial nature. But it's usefully direct. I answer that every agent of necessity acts for an end. Thank you. Okay, so teleology is everywhere. We're going we're gonna to read this and come back to it. For if in a number of causes ordained to one another, the first be removed, the others must of necessity be removed also. Now the first of all causes is the final cause. That's an Aristotelian claim from book one of the metaphysics. The reason of which is that the matter does not receive form, save insofar as it's moved by an agent. I'm going to read the whole paragraph and come back. The reason of which is the matter does not receive form, save insofar as it's moved by an agent, for nothing reduces itself from potentiality to act. But an agent does not move except out of an intention for an end. Whoa, he just said there's intentions in things. Is he, does he think everything's thinking? Is it like Leibnizian monads that all have little brains or souls moving stuff around? Are there hidden little genies moving the world around? No, we'll come back to it. But if the agent were not determined to some particular effect, it would not do one thing rather than another. Consequently, in order that it produce a determinate effect, it must of necessity be determined to some certain one which has the nature of an end. And just as this determination is affected in the rational nature by the rational appetite, which is called the will, so in other things it's caused by their natural inclination, which is called the natural appetite. Now, all four causes were mentioned here. He has very broad, I would say nimble, subtle, analogical uses of these terms, like appetite, intention, form, it can mean very different things applied to very different like objects, okay? He doesn't say this here, but Aquinas thinks about this. I would say one way, to, a nice way to think about this is across the spectrum of what we might call the hierarchy of being, from non-living things to plants to animals to human beings. I'll leave out for the moment angels and God. So form, form is the determinate nature of a thing. It's not just what you see. Like, um, let's say there's a baby crawling on this table right now, okay? The form is not just the particular shape of the baby it has right now. That's the figura. That's like the artist is painting the figure of the baby. The form is the natural determination animating and unifying the baby from within. It's its nature. Now, we speed ahead in time, and we look at that baby 12 years later, and now it's a feisty 14-year-old adolescent. Is it the same entity as regards its natural form? Is it still a human being? Aristotle and Aquinas say yes. Is it still the same human being? Aristotle and Aquinas say yes. And then we speed forward, and it's 33 years old, the perfect age. It's just gotten, uh, you know, um, made a law partner in, on Nassau Street, you know. 
Is it still human? No, it's no longer human. Aquinas says that. No, sorry, sorry, sorry. What am I saying? Sorry, that was Brown University. Just sorry. No, it, it's still human. The lawyer on Nassau Street at 33 is still human, and it's still the same human. And then we go, it's old now. It's in a nursing home. It's receiving the last rites. It's Roman Catholic. Is it still human? Yes, it's an old person still human, and it's still the same human. Okay, that's the fo the form is the thing which remains throughout. It's the nature. So notice it's not very imaginative. It's much more profound. It's much more conceptual. The matter is all, it's, it's all the organic material parts that can, as it were, flow through and be arranged in and be materially constitutive of that. And you can think about the matter both in terms of the material organic parts, but then down further the chemical, the cells, and then down further the chemicals, and then the, the, you know, the protons and all that. Okay. But really, underneath that, there's the potentiality of the stuff of the universe that can be always changed further. And that's philosophical understanding of matter as pure potentiality. I'm not going to go into that. But the point is, in Aquinas and Aristotle saying in everything, there's a certain kind of residual indetermination. Because you can always manipulate it and alter it further. So you never get down to like a, just a first, a first kind of material particle that can no longer be further transformed. There's some kind of residual potency, capacity for transformation in all things. So you've got form, you've got material parts, you've got undergirding potency of matter. But here's the big claim. Well, to make it in the most mild way, all things that are in the universe are effective agent causes or efficient causes. So the baby drooling on the table and walking around trying to get the, uh, the, the water bottle and putting its hand in an electric light socket and driving its parents generally crazy and making lots of noises and wanting to be fed continually is emitting, uh, is, is, is performing operations which have effects. And you say, well, yeah, of course. Everybody believes in efficient causality, Father. And then I can, give, I can tell you what a gallbladder does. I can tell you what a cell does. I can tell you about DNA recombination. I can tell you about the particles of uranium. We can talk about what, you know, like the you know, wind patterns in China and God knows what. Okay, we can do all that. Like efficient causes are out there. Everybody accepts that. Right. That's right. But if you accept that they <laughs> somehow stem regularly from things based on their determinate form, because there are different forms, and babies are not wind patterns, are not trees, are not aardvarks, are not supernovas, and so there are different forms, and the forms emit different predictable effects, then you've admitted final causality. Why? Because the effects that come forth from certain things are emitted based on predictable outcomes due to the kind of natural form in question. Tenth grade or I think it's 10th grade and typically, I don't know, 10th grade high school students in America may be predictably um, expected to produce accurate answers to geometry questions. Aardvarks on the road in Arkansas avoiding badly, usually getting run over by 18-wheeler trucks cannot be expected to perform geometry problems. And they can be expected to reproduce. A box of diamonds cannot. Diamonds aren't precious because when you leave them alone, they reproduce. These are just very commonsensical claims, but they're claims about natural forms that emit operative effects that are arranged according to determinative patterns that we could call teleological in kind. 
If you take phosphorus and you strike it in the right way against another substance, it produces flame. This is not true of H2O. If you use a lot of H2O in a certain way, you can slake your thirst or you can put out the fire you started with the phosphorus because there are predictable effects produced, which we call ends, in all things. Now we go back to the hierarchy of being. Okay, I'm just trying to claim that there's these predictable effects in non-living things, but then, of course, as I've intimated, also living things, right? We cultivate the rose garden. Why are you cultivating the rose garden? Well, I'm hoping to get tulips to sell in the, in, the, in the spring. That's irrational behavior, my friend. Rose gardens produce roses. If you want to make, you know, if you want tulips, plant tulips, right? There are predictable outcomes. Now, they're not, they're not, that's an aesthetic use of them that's artistic and extrinsic to them. Their intrinsic end that they're pursuing is nutrition, growth, and reproduction. That's what living things do fundamentally on the vegetative level. Nutrition, growth, self-repair, and fruition. Animals also predictably uh, respond to their environment through sensate knowledge. Even the oyster at least has the sense of touch. And if you touch it, it closes its shell. Clams and oysters, very, very basic animals, but they have at least one of the senses. More complicated animals have five senses, have memories, and they use these to learn and to reproduce, to protect themselves, to nourish themselves, and to reproduce. They have the same kind of ultimate ends as plants, actually. Okay. But human beings are the tormented animal because they have the uh, heavy privilege of wanting truth and happiness. And as we know, that's a painfully weighty set of uh, dignified inclinations. Okay, so we all have, there's natural appetites or natural inclinations in everything. That's what we meant by intentions, it's not thinking. And we have rational appetites, which I've just described. Now I'm going to continue. Nevertheless, it must be observed that a thing tends to an end by its action or movement in two ways. First is a thing moving itself to an end as man. Okay, I move myself up to the seven-story heights of the angelicum because I want to move myself intellectually to understand Aquinas because I want to move myself towards the truth and maybe there's some other moves after that. I don't know. Second, as a thing moved by another to the end, as an arrow tends to a determinate end through being moved by an architect who directs his action to an end or as we lug water bottles up here to drink the water. And that's pretty much everything that's not human. Now, I mean, the animals move themselves, too, but they move through the appetites of sense, and plants move themselves to the appetites of vegetative life. Therefore, those things that are possessed of reason move themselves to an end because they have dominion over their actions through their free will, which is the faculty of reason and will. When the lion keeper at the zoo in Washington, because of her disordered affection for the lion, spends too much time with it when it has not been properly fed otherwise, and it kills, maims, and eats her, we do not put the lion on trial for murder. We do mourn the lack of prudence of the lion keeper, and out of respect for the dignity of the human being, interestingly, even the secular atheists who love the lions put the lion to death because it's now tasted human flesh, and it may want more. Right? We don't put the lion on trial. We do judge the prudence of the one who spent too much time with the lion. But those things that lack reason tend to an end by natural inclination as being moved by another and not by themselves, like the hungry lion, who is not to be held morally responsible particularly. 
since they do not know the nature of an end as such, and consequently cannot ordain anything to an end, I have to fast from human flesh today, because otherwise they will, <laughs> they will euthanize me. So I should just stick with the steak dinner. But can be ordained to an end only by another. That's why he's in the zoo. He's being observed by us for our intellectual delight and contemplation. He's been placed in a safe space so that we can observe him. For the entire rational nature is in comparison to God as an instrument to the principal agent as stated above. Now, it's interesting that this is all tied back here into the fifth argument for the existence of God. There's inclinations in all things that they didn't put there in themselves. This is even true of our spiritual inclinations, as I said yesterday. We didn't choose to be tormented by the desire to be happy or animated by the desire to, to find the truth. We just are that kind of thing, even when we move ourselves. But with regards to everything else, I mean, like, you and I didn't decide that we were going to be the kind of beings that digest. I don't want my body. It causes me all kinds of, I don't know, you know, health problems. Tough. It's the kind of thing we are. But this is all true of the whole universe. It doesn't mean the universe isn't beautiful and interesting and good. It just means that it's like, well, we didn't design it. So there is some kind of intelligibility inscribed in it. All right. Notice, this is, notice how interesting this is. Like, this is so different than like Kant or Descartes, who want to get you generate an ethics that has no commitment to a larger a posteriori, a priori theory of nature. This is the opposite. Aquinas is starting from the whole vision, a cosmic vision of nature, and he's zeroing in on what's proper to man. And we're embedded in a larger natural world. I must say, if you're going to take this and run with it, this is a great and ecological age, right? I mean, all these people who want to talk about duty, obligation, categorical imperatives, liberal freedom. They don't have a way to talk about what makes that reality of human autonomy connect back to the nature of the inclinations in the ecosystem and how they all hold together. But Aquinas actually does, just nota bene. Consequently, it is proper to the, natural, the rational nature to tend to an end as directing and leading itself to the end, whereas it is proper to the irrational nature to tend to an end as directed and led by another. Whether it apprehend the end as do irrational animals or do not apprehend it. So notice he says the lion can apprehend the end he's being led to, but he doesn't understand it rationally. You put food in front of him, and he apprehends as a lion can, he, he should eat the steak dinner. But he doesn't apprehend this conceptually and theorize about it and reason about whether to fast or, or to feast whether to go vegetarian. Now, look, what have we got to? If that's, so what I want to say is, in a certain way, what, we, what you're treating there, this is why, see, this is the kind of passage that shows you why people spend their life commenting Aquinas. Because he's giving you here something with which you can, you know, let's just say, potentially argue incessantly with lots of people for a long time about what he means and about how this squares with what a lot of other people argue that's contrary to it or different, okay? But he has the genius of being able to say a lot very succinctly. It's quite astonishing. Now, on the other hand, this is very minimal. I mean, I say, oh yeah, well that's all true, obviously. I mean, and man's final end is to build gas chambers, right? I mean, everybody asks for an end. We, we actually end up building the gas chambers so we can build a superior, create a superior race. We can kind of dominate other people or not members of the superior race, right? I mean, that would, you could hold that view. And I think you actually probably could hold that view. 
and still uphold most of what he said here. What I mean is, well, I don't know if it actually worked in the end, but my point, I've never tried it, you know. But the thing is that what's funny about this is, in one way, it's extraordinarily ambitious. In another way, all we've got now is human beings pursue happiness by seeking ends, and this is their own specific way of being a natural being, because all natures incline towards certain given outcomes. And some, in, and you know, you have non-living things, you have living things, you have animal living things, you know, plants, then you have animals, then you have human beings. And we incline towards rational activity through our reason and free will as a way to try to seek our end. Okay, very minimal, also very strong claim, depending on whether you look at the metaphysical side, strong claim, or the moral side, minimal claim. Okay, whether human acts are specified by their end. I answer that each thing receives its species in respect to an act and not in respect of potentiality. Again, I'll just read for a while. Wherefore, things composed of matter and form are established in their respective species by their own forms or natures. And this is also to be observed in proper movements. He means movements proper to them by virtue of their nature. For since movements are in a way divided by action and passion, he doesn't mean like romantic passion. He means things suffered or undergone. You know, like uh, my action is walking across, across the uh, city of Rome in the heat, and that as, a, as a result, I'm undergoing the rising body temperature of having the sun heat my body passively. For since movements are in a way divided into action and passion, each of these receives its species from an act, action indeed from the act which is the principle of acting, passion from the act which is the terminus of the movement. Wherefore, heating as an action is nothing but a certain movement proceeding from heat, while heating as a passion is nothing else than a movement towards heat. You and I becoming hot specifically. That's the heat heating us, is specifying us with a new property. And it is the definition that shows the specific nature. And either way, human acts, whether they be considered as actions or as passions, receive their species from the end. For human acts can be considered in both ways, since man moves himself and is moved by himself. Now, it's been stated above that acts are called human insofar as they proceed from a deliberate will. Now, an object of the will is the good and the end. Hence, it is clear that the principle of human acts, insofar as they're human, is Sorry, the principle of human acts, insofar as they're human, is the end. In like manner is their terminus, for the human act terminates at that which the will intends as the end. Thus, in natural agents, the form of the thing generated is conformed to the form of the generator. And so Ambrose says, morality is properly said of man. Moral acts, properly speaking, receive their species from their end, for the moral acts are the same as human acts. Okay. He's... he's what he's done here is introduced two, uh, I don't think we need to spend too much time on this, but it's, it's important to understand that he's introduced two new key words or ideas. Um, well, one is not new, I suppose I've mentioned, but it's correlated with, in a new way with the, the, the one I'm about to talk about, which is species. Okay, so the species of an act sometimes is also called, now there's a huge literature on this, I'm not expert on it, it's very subtle the relationship in Aquinas between objects and ends of human acts. This is like massively sophisticated, controversial subject because and it actually gets into really interesting moral cases. But a species and an object are somewhat related to a great extent track onto each other. So for example, it's a summer day in South Carolina you leave your house and you look across Miss Smith's lawn and 
there's a nice young man out there mowing the lawn. And you stop and you roll down the window and you say, hey, what's the species of act that you are performing? What's the, what's the moral object of your act? And he, and he yells back at you in a, with a wonderful southern twang. He says, the current act I'm performing is specified by the end of mowing the lawn for Miss Smith. So the immediate object is I am going to cut the lawn, which is going to take me the next two hours. And you say, oh, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> but then you come back later, two hours later, and he's gone. And Miss Smith comes running out in her lawn uh, distressed. And she says, do you know that that young man broke into my house while I was away and he stole all my jewelry and just left my lawnmower sitting in the middle of the yard running? Well, now we've discovered that a good man is hard to find. And that what happened, in fact, was while he gave us a good Thomistic theory of human action, the object of his act was to rob Miss Smith while she was away from her house. What's specifying the human act? Well, it's basically, you could say in one sense, the goal. But it's also the thing, you might say the form of the act, the spe specific thing he's doing in view of obtaining the goal. So. If he's formally mowing the lawn, he's doing it for an end. Presumably, well, the, the, the immediate term is to complete, the terminus is to complete the mowing of the lawn. There's probably then a proximate end, which is to get paid for it, so he can save up to buy a car, so he can drive his date to the prom, or whatever else you do in South Carolina. But if the species is, in fact, he's using it as a ruse, then that's only the material the material element, and what he's formally doing is he's using the matter of the ruse in order to formally and specifically rob Miss Smith. And that also is in view of probably another end, which is buying a car so he can take someone to the prom. Yeah? How's it different from means? Well, the formal object can look a lot like a means, except that means has to do with whether there's a subsequent end. But the point is you've got to have some in a discrete act, in every discrete act we're doing, like right now, I'm discreetly trying to like teach Aquinas, there's some specifying form to it, even if it is in some respects also a means to something else. So it can be both an object and a means. And even an end can be a kind of means. So let's just leave means to the side right now. I'll come back to it in a second. You can have a specific thing you're doing and you can have a specific thing done in view of a given end. Sometimes those things align very closely. Like right now I'm just mowing, like I own the lawn. Let's just now say it's my house and I'm mowing the lawn. I want it to look nice. So I'm just, my, my mowing the lawn and my reaching the end that I want to obtain are really, really close, they're really allied. But then I, got a, then I have a teenager and I'm making the teenager mow the lawn and I'm doing this in part because I want him to learn discipline. Okay, now the end is a little bit separated from the object. Okay, now he's doing it to get money, so that's also an end separated a little bit from the object. Okay, and also to obey his parent because he has to do he has to do a certain amount of obedience so that the parent will let him do other things he wants to do. Okay, so the point is these objects and ends. You get a very sophisticated account. The nice thing about it's you say it's very vague what you're saying, Father. But the point is once you start to describe objects and ends in this very sort of subtle way, you can begin to do, generate a lot of mm, subtle claims about moral action and behavior. Yeah, Evan. Yeah, I wanted to, to clarify that last example. 
object? In which example? What? In which example? Uh, where the teenager is learning how to mow the lawn. Well, the, see, so I could agree with the teenager. I'm t it's, let's, say, let's say I'm a father and the teenager is my son, and we agree on the object. The object is you're going to go out there and mow that lawn right now. And so we, we agree on the object. The end could be very different in the sense that I want him to do it in order to learn to be responsible and like obey. And he wants to obey and so to get me off his back and to get his allowance. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Now it gets, see, it can get, it can no degrees of subtlety. I'm just giving you a first introduction to this because there's lots of, so let's move to reply, reply to objection three and you'll see examples of, of, show you a little bit how this gets subtle. Reply to objection three. One and the same act, insofar as it proceeds from the agent, is ordained to but one proximate end. All right, so the proximate end here is like, the, huh? It's like mowing the lawn. Like what? I stop the teenager and say, "Why are you doing that?" He says, "Well, I, what do you mean? I'm mowing the lawn in order to like, I'm 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 running this lawnmower over in the grass because I'm mowing the lawn to get the lawn mowed." So that's the proximate end. You know, there's a certain kind of proximate end which is pretty much identical with the object, from which it has its species. But it can be ordained to several remote ends, of which one is the end of the other. Okay, he wants to get done so he can get his allowance. But he wants his allowance so he can go to the prom. Okay. It is possible, however, that an act which is one in respect of its natural species be ordained to several ends of the will. Thus, this act to kill a man, which is but one act in respect to its natural species, can be ordained as to an end to the safeguarding of justice and to the satisfying of anger. Ah. So, this is like Hollywood movies, right? You've got the guy who... Mm, has come home from the war. These are stereotypical movies. He was a really good CIA agent. He's like the most awesome kung fu and uh, like um, special arms, special forces person. And he's now living his quiet life in his neighborhood until the thugs move in and do something bad. And then he goes like he becomes vigilante, right? And so all those capacities he has to efficiently kill someone are now seen to be used for the pro for the approximate end of justice. But you can, <laughs> you can imagine other scenarios in which a person who has acquired the use of the efficient and intelligent rational killing of another human being might use that for ends which are not so easily sublimated to the order of justice. Like then you get the mercenary. He's the this is the stereotypical bad mercenary in the film who the US Special Forces trained, but he, he felt like he wasn't making enough money afterwards, so he went to work for the evil villain. And now he's like the Special Forces like super killer who's sold himself out to the highest bidding, and he's using the efficient, and of course these two guys are gonna have in the end of the movie some square off where they're both gonna use their super special forces like moral object capacity to kill people to fight each other for the ends that are either good or bad. Mm -hmm. And of course the good guy usually wins because otherwise the movie would be dissatisfying and we would regret having paid money for it because we have a natural preference to see the outcome of justice rather than injustice, which is interesting. The result being that there would be several acts in different species of morality. Right? So um, you, you don't do the specific killing of the person either, both for something good and bad, at the same time under the same aspect. There is a kind of finitude. You can't do all things at the same time under the same aspect when you're doing one thing. You're doing it for some proximate reason, and that in view of some other proximate reason. It's not infinite.
For a movement does not receive its species from that which is its terminus accidentally, from that only for that which is its terminus per se. Okay, so now think about the case of you've got a, you've got a Catholic who's really good in special forces warfare and for whatever reason found himself in the Green Berets or, you know, I don't know what those things are called, Navy SEALs. And he's been sent, loyal soldier that he is, into Pakistan to oversee um, the delivery of smart, smart bombs to try to blow up people that are thought to be terrorists. Now, we can ask a lot of moral questions here. First of all, are these killings extrajudicial? Ju because it's true the Pentagon has a process for thinking about whether there's an ethical criteria for killing one of these people, but they haven't been put on trial in any strong sense at an international or national level. So there's a real interesting question about extrajudicial killing and whether it's really morally illicit. Let's leave that to the side, and just for the sake of argument, although I would say to you probably we shouldn't leave this to the side, it probably is, a, it could be a deal breaker, I think it probably is, I think you probably have to have a trial. But the point is, let's say that there's been some kind of sufficient just war criteria established, and then the guy is basically, and, then, and we've asserted that the person has, is a true threat to the common good and that don't exist better means to impede their terrorist activity and that there's somehow a moral warrant for the order of international and national justice for this kind of action. So we've removed a lot of obstacles that we might not have should have, but let's just say we do. And then the, the fellow who's a devout Catholic uh, helps guide the missile like he's looking through his binoculars to, okay. But then, because of an unforeseen circumstances, despite his best care, there happened to be a school bus going nearby and you know, 10 kids are killed, okay? That's outside the intention. But it's close enough to, uh, that, now that, that, that is not either the object or specific, specific object of the act. That's not what he's trying to do. It's not the end he was, he was interested in. He want, his end is probably like world peace or like you know, the common good, okay? But what is that? That's a circumstance. Now was that circumstance foreseeable or not? Sometimes circumstances are not foreseeable and then you have very tragic actions that happen despite good intentions. Sometimes circumstances are foreseeable and they should have entered into your prudence. So now we're starting to see how moral action theory develops in the Thomistic optic. You've got species or objects of act, you've got ends of acts, and you've got circumstances. And these things all start to play a And then in, there's even more complexity I won't go into, but you've got like the material dimension of the formal act and the, and the formal, you've got the material, the matter of the act and the form of the act. So like this, this, I'll just give you one example of that. A guy's walking down, uh, you walk down an alley late at night and you see a man holding another man and he has a knife plunged into his side and the man with the knife plunged into his side is dying. And you rightly infer, for the sake of argument, that that man who put the knife in his side has killed him by, putting, by materially putting the knife in his side. I'm dealing with all these violent cases because actually a lot of stuff applies when you deal with violence, murder, and, you know, versus just, just killing, et cetera. But you can use it in a lot of other domains, be they monetary, sexuality, um, order of justice in political regimes. Okay. Materially speaking, this person has put a knife. Now, I don't know if this is a mugging in which actually the person was killing another person by unjust violence to take their money. So the object was to murder him. The matter through which he did it was stabbing. The end was to take the money. Or maybe, I find out later, it was self-defense. The one who's dying was assailing him with a gun, had already shot him once in the leg, 
had manifested an intention to kill him, and this was an act of desperate self-defense. And so the matter is the same, but the formal object, acting in self-defense, is very different. And under trial, the outcome is completely distinct. Okay? So the point is sometimes the material element can be identical, but the formal object can be totally diverse. And the end can be totally diverse. Okay. I'm just giving you like just the most basic, you know, in, there's lots of books you can read about this stuff. This is just a basic kind of uh, introduction. Once you go down this road and look at how Aquinas looks at moral acts, you see why there are two kind of moral theologians in the Catholic Church, those who study at Thomas Aquinas and those who probably shouldn't have come out to engage. Because this stuff, is, it gets so subtle and so, and, but like realistic, like my cases are at least realistic. I don't know if they're very good ones, but this, this, Aquinas is the master of the analysis of the moral act theory in moral theology. And there's so many interesting subtleties that are realistic. That he, he becomes really the generator of the great tradition of moral reflection. Now, there are many, many schools, but I mean, he, he introduces us in the whole field. All right, now, Article 4. Is there one last end of human life? Now, this does seem to now touch upon a more controversial existential question. So, you know, I have, we've crossed lots of metaphysical scruples so far, but this is a, a more existential scruple. I mean, isn't it right to say there's one final end of human existence for me? I perceive the world that way subjectively, but not necessarily for you, because you should be able to construct your own sense of the final purpose of reality. I mean, I wouldn't want to impose on you my metaphysics of the final end of man. In fact, the whole idea that there is a final end is itself something I would never want to impose on you. Actually, Aquinas does think everybody kind of construes subjectively their own theory of the final end. He just thinks there's an, there is an objective one that obtains. All right, so let's, let's read this. Here I'm going to read the on the contrary. The philosopher says in Metaphysics 2.2, that to suppose a thing to be indefinite is to deny that it is good, but the good is that which has the nature of an end. Therefore, it's contrary to the nature of an end to proceed indefinitely. Therefore, it's necessary to fix one's last end. It's interesting. You know, in book two of, Meta book two of metaphysics may have been an independent, this is called the little alpha. This book's called the little alpha. It's very short. It may have been an independent work originally, and it's, it's unbelievably brilliant masterpiece, but it's short and suggestive. And basically what Aristotle argues is that for all four of the causes, you can't gain purchase of intelligibility on reality unless you cease to proceed to the infinite and, and claim there is some kind of definitive intel, finite intelligibility to each thing under the aspect of the four causes. So to go to final causality, if you try to say, you know, what are the, what are the determinant properties of water when it engages with, say, fire? Say, oh, well, no, oh, no that, can't not, that can't be analyzed. That cannot be analyzed because there's an indefinite, infinite number of possible outcomes. So we could never understand what the, what the, what the you know, uh, predictable outcomes of water interacting with fire would look like. And Aristotle says, that that's just not how we live, it's not realistic, it's not how the world works, it's not how we think. We actually look for the definitive outcomes and properties. Say, you know, I've got a bunch of geometry students in 10th grade in my class, you know, I'm going to give them a bunch of geometry problems to do for homework. Can I expect them to come back and give me 
geometry answers tomorrow as opposed to like world history answers or, uh, you know, I don't know what, chemistry answers. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's totally unknowable. We don't know. There's like an infinite number of possible outcomes. It's absolutely uncertain. No one lives that way, right? We all live knowing there's only a finite amount of outcomes possible the next day, okay? I answer that, absolutely speaking, it's not possible to proceed in, in, indefinitely in the matter of ends from any point of view. For insofar as, th as things, for in whatsoever things, there is an essential order of one to another. So the philosopher proves this in Physics 8, that we cannot proceed to an infinitude of causes and movement because there would be no first mover, yada, yada. Okay, he's, giving, he's looking a little bit there, the efficient cause, I'm not going to go into it. Now there is to be observed a twofold order in ends, the order of intention and the order of execution. What I intend ultimately, and what do I do first? If you, have you been to the Sistine Chapel? So, you know, you know famously, we've talked about it, the hand already, like God's reaching out to touch Adam. What, what's, what's under his other arm? Is that what you're going to say? Huh? I think it's, it's Eve. She's not created yet. Why is Eve under his arm when he's, hey, do you know what she's doing? She's looking at him. She's looking at, how, what does she look, how does she look? She's like peering around. She's apprehensive. She's, she's apprehensive. There's, de there's like a mixture of wonder, delight, and terror. <laughs> yeah. She's fascinated and she's like, and she's, she's hiding behind God's arm. Like, what are you doing to me? It's really, really interesting. It's beautiful. It's cute. It's also like really like deep. So, but the point is Eve is last in the order of intention and Adam's first in the order of execution. He's creating Adam first, but he's inclined towards eventually creating Eve. What's first in the order of intention, oh, what's, sorry, what's ultimate in the order of intention is not what's first in the order of execution. Her hands on Christ child? Oh, that's cool. <laughs> All right, well, we won't go into the Christology yet. All right. On the other, I'm skipping down. On the other hand, the principle in execution is, what is, is that wherein operation has its beginning, and if this principle be taken away, no one will begin to work. <laughs> that's, he's, you can tell he's teaching Dominicans. All right, now, the principle and the intention is the last end, while the principle in execution is the first of things which are ordained to the end. We've already said that. Consequently, on neither side is it possible to go to infinity, right? You can't, let's say you're going to a definite end. What do you want to do? Well, I want to get in the car and I want to take a road trip to Las Vegas. Um, okay, to execute that, I have to do something concrete, like we're going to need a car. We're going to need gas. We're going to need enough money to drive for a week. We're going to need nowhere to stay, all that. But I have to do at some point something first or else we're never going to get to Las Vegas. But it's also true in the end intention. We've got the car, we've got the money, we've got the roadmap, but where are we going? I don't know. It's an existentialist paradise. There's no purpose. My compass is broken. I don't know. Let's drive to Las Vegas. No, let's go to Nevada. Let's go to like Colorado. We're so indeterminate. Okay, but you know, it's six o'clock. We've been arguing about this for six hours. Let's go back in and watch hockey. Okay. Right. So the point is you can't have just indetermination if you have human action. For every human action, there's determination, both with regards to a final end and with regards to a first point of execution. 
Reply objection one, the very nature of good is that something flows from it and not that it flows from something else. Uh, well, no, sorry, this is an interesting, yeah, I'm not gonna read that. I was reading this earlier and thinking, it would be very interesting to compare his argument that, because the objection is from Dionysius that not all actions proceed towards a good, but rather the best way to be good is to just be able to do an infinite number of things. And I was thinking, that sounds a lot like Nietzsche's will to power, like the capacity to just be free to do whatever you want. And it's interesting to think about how Aquinas responds to that in responding to Dionysius. There's some interesting overlaps, like how he responds to Dionysius and how he might respond to Nietzsche. But anyway, it's an aside. Article five, whether one man can have several last ends. It's impossible, I answer that it's impossible for one man's will to be directed at the same time to devise diverse things as last ends. Now he's actually here more on the subjective side. In other words, can I will to direct my life simultaneously to many different things? He's not saying, you know, uh, Camus, Camus wants to be a great atheist writer and philosopher. And um, Maritain wants to be a great theist, writer, and philosopher. And they want different things. They do want different things. Uh, he's not saying that can't happen. He's saying that they can only, in some sense, orient their life ultimately toward one horizon each. So it starts with a more modest claim. But then notice how he builds this up. Three reasons may be assigned for this. First, because since everything desires its own perfection, a man desires for his ultimate end that which he desires as his perfect and crowning good. So it's on the side of the subjective. Whatever you take to be the ultimate good, you're hardwired to want happiness and to find the, the good in truth. And people take this to be different things. Some, as we'll see in the next question, some money, some wealth, some power, some honor, some pleasure, some something uncreated. But everyone orders their life towards something. And they can only really, in some sense, organize their life in the order of execution and realization in their intentions if they have some structure to what they're willing. I'm skipping the Augustine quote. It is therefore necessary for the last end to, be, to fill man's appetite that nothing is left beside it for man to desire, which is not possible if something else be required for his perfection. Consequently, it's not possible for the appetite to tend to two things as though each were his perfect good. Now, that's not to say that, that goods don't compete for men's hearts. Of course they do. But when they come to determinate action, when they decide to wrestle with their loves and to somehow subordinate their conflicted hearts towards purposeful activity, they have to make concrete <coughs> decisions. The second reason is because just as the process of, in the process of reasoning, the principle is that which is naturally known, so in the process of the rational appetite, the will, the principle needs to be that which is naturally desired. Now this must needs be one. To perform one act, you have to be ordered towards something really one. But because that itself has some kind of end in view, there has to be a kind of unity to the act. I think this is a very hard claim to actually defend. I think it can be defended. But I think the fact of the matter is people can do one thing while still maintaining a lot of open-mindedness about where they're going to go next. So I, I think you have to make a lot of qualifications to make this argument work. I'm just saying these little, sometimes little paragraphs seem to be laden with lots of potential pitfalls or objections, which I tend to figure out myself the more I wrestle with Aquinas. I, I come around to thinking he's right, but 
some of the paragraphs strike me as more problematic than others. Sister Mary Chris thinks the paragraph self self evident. All right. The third reason, yeah, all of it. The third reason is because since voluntary actions receive their species from their end, they must need receive their genus from the last end, which is common to them all. Just as natural things are placed in the genus according to a common form. Since then, all things that that can be decided by the will belong as one to the genus of the the. The last end must needs to be done. Okay, so the kid is mowing the lawn, and the terminus of the specific act is he's just trying to get the lawn mowed. But that fits into a larger genus of goods or acts performed in view of happiness. And there has to be some way in his mind of organizing all that together because he's trying to think about what is really good in every single act that he performs across against the backdrop of a wider world of goods. You say, well, why does he have to think? Why can't he just be thinking about the lawnmower? Well, the problem is because for Aquinas, the human being is, because we're rational animals, capable of perceiving the universal good. So we can perceive much more than this, the good of money or lawnmowering or you know, whatever it is. We, we are, we're always assailed by multiple goods. And we're like trying to think about how to hierarchically arrange them. And the moral life takes place in that kind of field of discernment. Um, all right, let's just briefly do the last, the next two articles. The last one, the eighth article is less important. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna take a break soon, but I wanna get, just get through article six and article seven. Whether man wills all, whatsoever he wills for his last end. Now I think again, this is somewhat on the subjective side in the sense that, I mean, obviously make a claim about objective human nature. This is true of all persons. But he's saying that all human beings, whatever it is they think is going to make them happy, have some way they hierarchically arrange the goods that they pursue. Augustine says, on the contrary, that Augustine says that that is the end of, of our good for the sake of which we love other things, we know whereas we love it for its own sake, some things we love for their own sake. I answer that man must of necessity desire all whatsoever he desires for his last end. That is evident for two reasons. First, because whatever man desires, he desires it under the aspect of good. And if he desires it not as his perfect good, which is the last end, he must of necessity desire it as tending to the perfect good, because the beginning of anything is always ordained to its completion, as it clearly, as is clearly the case in effects both of nature and of art. Wherefore, every beginning of perfection is ordained to complete um, perfection, which is achieved through the last end. Okay, so here we come back to a little bit of the question of means. So I can say, you know, why are you doing that? Why, why are you going to law school? I'm going to law school to get a job. That's the end. You say, well, that's that. That's that. So you just got hired by whatever firm in DC. Is that, is that the purpose of your life? You say, well, no, I mean, I'm, I'm doing this for other reasons. Why are you doing it? Well, one reason is to support my family. I really love my wife and my children for their own sake. So I'm, you know, working hard. I'm actually working like 70 hours a week, but I am making $350,000 a year at you know, a young age. This is great. I hate my job, but I'm doing it because I love the money I'm making. Okay. And uh, you say, well, okay. Um, so you went to law school ultimately to try to support your family. You say, yeah. Mm, and to accumulate a certain right kind of honor in the world through honorable behavior. And I'm also politically active. And okay, now it's getting more complicated. It's not just your family. There's also other things involved. And so we're gonna have to get a more complex account. But the point is some things are mediating and other things are more ultimate. So what's most ultimate? 
Second, because the last end stands in the same relation in moving the appetite as the first mover to the other movements. Now it's clear that the secondary moving causes do not move, save in as much as they're moved by the first mover. Therefore, secondary objects of the appetite did not move the appetite, except as ordained to the first object of the appetite, which is the last end. These people are killing themselves in law school. You, don't, you guys don't have one, do you? Is there, no, you're right. But you, you, have, you have friends who go to them. The other, those two, the two other places each have a famous one, right? And what are those people doing all that work for? Well, lots of different things. A lot of them are politically active. Some of them want to go into business law and join the Dollar Squad. Some of them want to like, try to take over you know, DC. Some of them want to like, do interesting contract work. Some of them are legal rights activists. Okay, whatever, there's a whole wide range. But the point is, they must want something bad because they're working pretty hard to get it. But whatever that is, is motivating them to hit the big books and try to figure out the structural content. Now, some of them actually just also like the intellectual delight of figuring out the structure of constitutional law and how the cases apply. And they're, they're, they're you know, law nerds. They're good law nerds. And probably in all cases, there's some mixture of the two. Does it make sense? But ultimately, underneath this, what's coming out, I think people's hearts are a little bit like plants coming out from under the surface of the soil. You're seeing which way the, the heart turns. It doesn't, it doesn't always emerge immediately. But over time, the deepest impulses of intention manifest themselves as those things towards which the heart turns. Now we could go all into grace here and talk about how grace is like a good lamp helping the plant orient itself even in the natural order in a rightly ordered way so that like all the other kinds of things you could will are still being kept kind of rooted, grounded in organically the right orientation of will towards the best aims. Do all men have the same last end? Now suddenly he kind of crash lands the objective element. Okay, we're all hardwired for willing some final end that we use to organize ourselves and we have different conceptions of it. Well, all he's gonna do here is make a very modest objective claim. All human beings seek happiness. So right when you think he's gonna turn the corner and like say, okay, everybody needs, to, needs God. God is the objective end of every human act of desire, the ultimate end of every human will. He doesn't, he says happiness. And actually, this is all you need to start the beginnings of the Thomistic theory of morality. Human beings, in all their acts, are striving for happiness. We'll look at the next article about the various theories of what can make people happy. And then he'll get more critical. I answer that we can speak of the last end in two ways. First, considering only the aspect of last end. Secondly, considering the thing in which the aspect of last end is realized. So then, as to the, last as the aspect of last end, all agree in desiring the last end, since all desire the fulfillment of their perfection. And it's precisely this fulfillment in which the last end consists. You know, it's, it's very hard to tell people from your sociological caste system to try this. But if you try to live two or three days without having a purpose, to, like really having a purposeless life, I don't mean like a Nietzschean or Dostoevskian purposeless life, like you know, a Dostoevsky, like a Karamazov or something. I mean like, like just try not to perform a human act all day oriented towards a purposeful end. You can't do it really. It's not, it's not really doable. But it's interesting like as a philosophical experiment. 
So anyway, the point is, you just, we, we just do always act in view of ends. But as to the thing in which the aspect is realized, all men are not agreed as to their last end. Since some desire riches as their consummate goods, some pleasure, others something else, thus to every taste, the sweet is pleasant, but to some the sweetness of wine is most pleasant, to others the sweetness of honey, or something similar. Yet that sweet is absolutely the best of all pleasant things, in which he who has the best taste takes most pleasure, and that's chocolate. In like manner, the good is most complete, which the man with well-disposed affections desires for his last end. Okay, so there's some objective happiness that would be what, based on our nature, should make us almost happy. That's all he says. But he does say we, we do all strive for happiness through free acts in all kinds of ways based on the objects and ends of all of our actions. Yeah? Does that mean that we seek to be virtuous or seeking, or, or say, say we're, we're praying so as to come to union with God? Are we praying to be happy over praying to um, have a form of God? Like, can these be conflicting interests even though they're, they're it's a good question. I mean, I think everything would depend on whether we have a sufficiently enriched conception of happiness and whether we trust God to procure for us happiness in ways we had not necessarily foreseen. So we have habitual structures of happiness. The fact of the matter is we enjoy many ends or many, well, many goods simultaneously, and we arrange those I call them kind of subordinate ends. Aquinas sometimes talks about this a little bit, like there's ends. You, you pursue like something like um, a job as an end, an end, or you mow the lawn as an end. Okay, But these are all subordinate to one's final end in life. So there's certain patterns in which we live for God uh, reasonably and supernaturally in a collection of the pursuit, uh, while pursuing a collection of goods in a stable way, or possessing a collection of goods in a stable way. Like, I pursue love of God above all things while also maintaining the good of deep and good, deep lasting relationships with my family, or good relationships with um, my boss, or a good relationship with my civic government. And then a moment comes where you have this impression that to do the will of God would require you to find the happiness of union with God perhaps by having some of these relationships deeply affected in ways that undermine some of the goods previously possessed. And say so they're, they're so profound that that would really affect my happiness. So, I mean, the classic case, the guy dating the girl, and he's thinking about marrying her, but then one day he goes off on a retreat or something, and God hits him over the head with a bottle, spiritually speaking, metaphorically speaking. And he suddenly realizes he's got a calling to the priesthood. And he says, well, I want to be happy. I, I don't want to do the will of God. I guess I'm going to do the will of God and be unhappy. Category error. If it's really God's, if it's, if it's, really, if it's really God's calling, for a, if, if a now if you're not a Thomist, you're, you're free as a Catholic doctrinally to hold a very unhappy view that God asks you to kill your own delight in the world or your desire for happiness precisely by doing things that actually are going to make you rigorously speaking unhappy. But it's better to be unhappy and do the will of God than to be happy and not do the will of God. Now that's a view that can be generated in a non-Thomistic framework. It isn't in a Thomistic framework. So what I have to say as a Thomist is I have to tell myself a more complicated story. 
where I say, well, you know, I thought I was going to be happy in this way. I'm giving that up, and in a respect, then, I'm going to be very unhappy. But in another respect, because God is an ultimate source of happiness, I have to believe this reorienting of my will towards the thing that God wills for me, or that I have good prudential reason to believe God wills for me, is actually going to be the deeper source of happiness. And then I can add another caveat, in this life or in the life to come, because as the Virgin Mary said to Bernadette, you will be happy in the next life, signaling to her at the vision in Lourdes that she would suffer a lot in this life. And indeed, she did a lot. So, I mean, God is, as we'll come to this later, when Aquinas actually says later in other places that in a certain respect, you cannot really be happy in this life. Now, if that were true on such a radical level that we couldn't even perceive what the word happiness meant, then we would be speaking nonsense when we talked about it because no one would know it. It would be like I made up a funny word that had no signification. We, not, so obviously we know something about happiness or else we wouldn't talk about it. But in terms of the true fulfillment of happiness, Aquinas has an ultimately an eschatological horizon. So there's a lot of <coughs> both and in Aquinas is already and not yet. We can have real happiness with God and we anticipate a greater happiness we can't have in this life. And it's very good news. Because if we get to have a fulfillment of happiness in this life, it would mean there was nothing coming in the life to come and there's no union with God possible because we already have everything we're capable of wanting and desiring in this life. And that would be, for Aquinas, terribly sad. So actually, paradoxically, he never says it quite this way, the saddest thing would be if we could be fully happy in this life. The happiest thing is that we can, in some sense, never be fully happy in this life and have to have a certain residual, if you like, sadness. Insofar as that shows we have a God-shaped heart open to something higher that we have not yet received. So when you get into Aquinas on happiness, you do get these. But what you can't do, as your helpful question raised provocatively, you can't, from Aquinas' point of view, let go of happiness as the criteria of moral action. Now, this has consequences in discernment. For example, in the Dominican religious order, if a person is perpetually deeply unhappy in religious life under religious observance, we kick them out. And we do it very much for them so that they will be happy because we don't believe that they're in the life uh, to be miserable. So the, the, the discernment of spirits is connected to whether the profound desires are being met. But this is connected, all, this can coexist with deep struggle. You can have a person who can only achieve that deeper, stable, peace, happiness, and joy of life with God through a certain dimension, a set of, uh, of passages of renunciation. And those can happen in various times in life, where the passages of renunciation also carve out more space for God in the heart, but that hurts, that carving hurts. Yeah, but what it isn't is, it's not masochistic, it's not naturally destructive, it's not basically wedding misery. You know, it's a deeper grounding in a, in a more, ultimately a more profound happiness, at least from the point of view of the optic of this analysis of human actions.